Some things, some things are best sung, right? Some things matter so much and are packed with emotion. That's why God gives us music and singing, I think. Thank you, worship team. I forgot to make meaningful eye contact with you. <laughs> Hopefully you took that comment as affirmation. Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. This morning, we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. We call it the book of 1 Corinthians, but actually it's a letter written by a guy named Paul to a bunch of Christians in a city called Corinth. And Paul wrote to them to remind them of their calling to be in Christ. We saw that in the first nine verses of this letter, in Christ appears nine times. He wants to remind them to find their identity in the gospel, the good news of God's love for us. And he sums that up as Christ crucified. And he calls them back to unity because they've been struggling in that regard. And for us today, Paul's letter can still help us to come back to God, to love others, to live at peace with them, to overcome the division in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our country, and in our churches, to break down barriers and to be, as we've titled this series, one body, the body of Christ in a broken and divided world, and to build the church. And we're going to start to hear about that today, to build from the starting point, the foundation of God's true wisdom, and to see church growth only in light of Christ crucified. So I'm going to invite Eden Recker to come up now, and uh, I'm going to pray as she comes up, and she's going to read chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians for us. Let's pray. Dear God, would you come among us as your people at Courtright? And I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would make these words that we're going to hear now become like the bread of life for us. May they be living water for our souls. And I pray that they would establish a foundation for us at Courtright, that we would never go beyond what you have for us in your word, in your living word, which is you, Lord Jesus. Would you be at the core of who we are, surround us in every way this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, this is all of chapter three, so um, get comfortable. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. 
For we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think that you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are your, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future are all yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Thank you, Eden. And thanks be to God for his word. So I got to tell you, I'm a little sad this morning. Oh, thank you. That's going to help with my sadness. I appreciate that. (laughs) Nothing like a little kindness for someone who looks forward to the Olympics every four years. That's perfect. Thank you. And uh, especially, above all, to the men's hockey event. Some of you know I'm a hockey fan. I do talk about it occasionally. And even if you're not a hockey fan, you probably know that ice hockey is kind of a big deal for Canadians. So 2018, the Olympics that year were disappointing because the world's best players from the National Hockey League were not allowed to join the Olympics. This year, the 2022 Olympics, four years later, were supposed to be different. We were supposed to see Connor McDavid play alongside Sidney Crosby. It was going to be beautiful. (laughs) But then Omicron happened. So I consoled myself over the last couple of days by watching highlights of Canada's past gold medal victories, especially a thrilling overtime win in 2010 in Vancouver. Some of you remember that? Can I get an amen from the hockey fans? (laughs) This year, we we finished sixth, just a hair's breadth ahead of Denmark. And so we thank God for the Team Canada women, and more on that later. Look, I respect the men who played as part of Team Canada this year. I was cheering for them. They gave it everything they had. But let's face it, I think we can admit that it was a shadow of what it should have been. 
I imagine that the Apostle Paul felt something like that kind of disappointment when he heard all the reports that he received about division and infighting in the church in Corinth. They had the mind of Christ. That's where we left off last week at the end of chapter 2. The Holy Spirit was with them. God had called them, we saw in chapter 1, enriched them in every way, given them every gift they needed. The gold medal should have been theirs. But no, they were quarreling, they were bitterly divided. And so Paul gives us three analogies here in chapter 3, three images to help us understand God's view of church growth, right? We hear this word sometimes, this phrase, church growth, and we, I think, are sometimes confused about what we mean by that. So first of all, Paul compares the Corinthians to babies. Secondly, he compares them to a field planted with crops, and third, to a building and also to a temple. So the first thing is that Paul diagnoses the problem. Why aren't they growing? Not numerically. They may have been growing numerically. He's talking about the kind of growth that happens when you're planted in the gospel, which he again summarizes as Christ crucified. And he says they're not growing, they're not experiencing true church growth because they're acting like these self-centered babies. Now I've heard stories from parents with babies or toddlers through this pandemic. It has been a really hard two years for you, I know. There's been little to no childcare available for long stretches of what we've gone through. One thing you know, and I think all of us know when we stop to think about it, is that small children crave attention, right? They need it. Yesterday I read about a family in New York City where the parents living in a small apartment had constructed a labyrinth slash obstacle course slash play area in their living room out of boxes and toys. I think they had booby traps and goldfish dispensers. <laughs> they turned over couches and set them up as barriers. All of that so they could attend online work meetings for as long as possible in the bedroom or the bathroom before their little Zoom bomber arrived on the scene. The Corinthians were like that. Apparently, they had been complaining that Paul had only given them milk and not solid food. They were putting him down in his absence, complaining about him like that. But Paul, here in his letter, pushes back. He says that he couldn't give them solid food because they had never accepted the basic message, the milk, which he sums up as simply Christ crucified. There's a lot more to be said about it, but that is his uh, summary of the gospel in this letter. And so they weren't ready to understand that the solid food that comes next is to see the whole of the Christian life in the light of Jesus laying down his life for our sins. You never outgrow the cross. You can never go deeper than that either. And the Corinthians were like babies howling for attention as they attached themselves to these different factions and leaders and styles and theologies. Who knows what else was in that mix? Does the church still look like that today? What do people see when they look from the outside 
at the Church of Jesus Christ in Guelph, in Canada, around the world. Well, Paul goes on to point the way to true church growth by sketching out the diversity of leadership roles in the church. He gives us a new image, a new analogy. He says, he planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but only God can make it grow. So he's saying here that different leaders are not rivals. He's kind of rehabilitating this friend of his, Apollos. He said, no, they have different roles to play at different times. And those distinctive roles shouldn't cause strife because they come from God for the good of everyone. We saw last week, unity in the essentials, diversity in the non-essentials, and charity or kindness in all things. And different leadership styles, different leadership roles are part of that diversity. But Paul says that ultimately each leader is nothing and can do nothing, but that God is the only source of real growth. And in verse 9, he writes, For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. He kind of brings two metaphors, overlaps them there. And he offers this as a major identity check for us. He tells the Corinthian Christians three times that they are not their own. They are God's. They belong to God. And in the original language, in the Greek, you get this message more clearly. A literal translation would be like this. God's we are, being fellow workers. God's field, God's building, you are. That's not great English. Kind of sounds like Yoda giving you (laughs) ecclesiology. But... I heard my daughter laugh very (laughs) noticeably there. Thank you for that, Chloe. Um, But he's saying to them, quite simply, that they belong to God, that they are not separate. They are not part of these different factions that they have allied themselves to. When I lived in Toronto, I had a few plants. Before I got married, I had... Two succulents and three cacti, to be precise. I didn't take a lot of water, which is just how I liked it. And then I got married and I acquired some more flowery, ornamental plants. But I didn't have any friends who were farmers when I lived in downtown Toronto. But then we moved to Guelph. And one thing I learned right away from my new farmer friends was that farming is an act of faith. You cannot hope to control it. You can work hard. You can do everything within your power to ensure that the harvest is going to come. But in the end, it only actually comes by God's grace. God alone is the source of true church growth, is what Paul is saying here. Next, he goes on to compare the church to a building project. Again, he says that he has only played one part. He laid a foundation, and someone else is going to build on it. And as he highlights this again, the different roles that people play, you get the the strong sense that this is a long-term project, right? How often do we think it all has to happen this year, or maybe this weekend there's a special retreat, or maybe in my lifetime? But no, God sees well beyond that, the long-term like we can't imagine, but we're invited into that. He warns the Corinthians that the only enduring basis 
for the long-term health of the church is Christ. He predicts that people will come along with other building materials, other ideas and techniques and strategies, but he says that none of that actually matters, but what matters is that God will judge it. In the end, it's up to, to God what will endure, what is worthwhile, even if it looks good, like gold and silver definitely does. John Calvin talked about the church visible and the church invisible, which when I first encountered this idea really helped me because you look out at the church visible and you see often, I think, conflict. You see hypocrisy. You see leaders falling from grace. You see problems. But Calvin said that the true church is the church that only God can see, the church invisible. And it is likely not going to look like the shiniest, wealthiest version of the church, the church that seems to get all the attention. And so we're not to judge. That's hard for us. But if we start judging other Christians, other denominations, we're going to lose our way. Instead, we're called to be alert, to always seek to grow as a church, and most of all, to build on this foundation that is Christ. Because the day is coming when what is true will be separated from what is false. And that's a warning to us. But it's swiftly followed by an encouragement. From the analogy of a generic building, Paul now tells the Corinthian Christians that they are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in them as a community of believers. Later in this letter, in chapter 6, he's going to tell them that their individual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. I think that's the temple analogy that gets the most airplay among Christians. But this comes first. This is more foundational. Together, in the presence and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are God's temple. Which means that as Courtright Church, God is pleased to dwell among us. And that points to the promise of the local church. And I hope it challenges our complacency about it too. Together, we are the ecclesia, is the Greek word that Paul used for it in chapter 1, which means the called out ones. We are made holy. And Paul says that Christ crucified establishes this identity for us. And nothing is more important in our lives than that. Is that how you think of who you are? If you were to stop and sort of define yourself, use various adjectives, does the reality of the local church, in all of its human weakness, to be sure, does that reality reside at the center of your life? And is your practical experience of church a place, a people among whom you will Encounter Jesus, risen and alive for you, for all of us. Are you looking for that, to be a part of that? Paul invites us to think on that more carefully, slowly, intentionally. But now Paul moves on in chapter 3 and into chapter 4. He moves on from these three images, these three analogies, and he wants to talk more about the planters than the farm. 
more about the builders than the building. He's going to take us into a discussion of the nature of Christian leadership. And he's talking about himself first and foremost because he has a problem with authority, and so do we. Paul's problem, and it comes out very much in this personal letter, and I I love 1 Corinthians for the way he drops these little personal comments throughout it. His problem is that the Corinthians, this church that he founded, his friends in a faraway place now, were rebelling against his leadership. Some of them were saying things about him that were not true, accusing him of things. Our problem today in our culture is that we don't trust authority and often for perfectly good reasons. In chapter 4, Paul explains how we should view leadership in the church. In verse 1, he says, Think of us in this way. That's how he starts it. And us there refers to the leadership of the church. The Bible is pro-leadership. Scripture is pro-authority, if I can put it that way. We are told that to grow as believers, individually and together, we have to submit to authority on some level. But there's good authority and there's bad authority. And Paul wants to lay out for us three characteristics of good authority, of Christian leadership. And he says they are servanthood, stewardship, and suffering. That's it's really important for us as a church to grasp this in general, but also specifically right now. Because over the next couple of months, we're heading into an elders election at Courtright. Starting in two weeks, you will be able to nominate members of our congregation to serve as elders. Now, you can only do that if you're a member. And that's one of many good reasons to consider becoming a member of KPC. And you still have four days to sign up for Courtright Connect, a little plug in there for that. Next week, we'll give you details about how this election will unfold. But today, we're going to hear from Paul on Christian leadership because we're inviting you to pray and to discern who to nominate, those of you who can do that, based on what Scripture says rather than on your own personal preferences and who you like. Evangelical churches have lately, I don't know how far back it goes, but certainly in the last 20, 30 years, have prioritized charisma over character. And the results have been disastrous for our witness to Christ. Let's not make that mistake at court right. And one of the discussions we have every time we hold a Courtright Connect event is what is evangelicalism? This word that is so loaded now, so problematic, that many people simply associate with Christians grasping political power, with the Republican Party in the U.S. But it has a long history, and it will survive this latest storm, I trust. But, okay, so maybe you're thinking, I'm not a Christian leader, I'm not involved in leadership, this, this doesn't apply to me, does it? But Well, not only because of the way I hope that you are able to join in the discernment, the nomination process for elders in our congregation, but also because all of us play the role of leader in someone else's life. Maybe you're not an elder of the church, but 
You might lead a small group. Or you might serve as a greeter on Sunday morning. Or maybe you're a parent or a grandparent. Or you're simply trying to care for someone in your life who's in need right now. Maybe you're a cashier at Zares and you're directing that lineup of people willing to buy their groceries. Or you're a plumber who leads people into making wise decisions about how to fix that leak in their pipes. Or maybe you're just trying to be a good influence in someone's life. All of these things are leadership. Which means that Paul's teaching on leadership here in chapter 4 applies to you too. In verse 1, Paul writes, Think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. That's from the New Revised Standard Version. So right away he says that Christian leadership is servanthood, first of all, and stewardship, second. So what is servant leadership? We hear that phrase thrown about a lot. Well, simply I think it means that if you're a Christian, your identity as a leader comes from serving others, from putting them them and their needs first. It's not primarily about your own will or your own agenda, but it's about your master's. It also means that Christian leaders see the group of people they're leading as not somehow their group, their people, but first and foremost as belonging to Christ. Maybe the best example in the whole Bible is John the Baptist. At one point, Jesus was starting to get more popular than John, and people, the followers of John the Baptist, asked him, doesn't this bother you? Who does this new guy, this Jesus guy, think he is? He hasn't been around that long. And John replied, no. He must increase and I must decrease. How many leaders think of themselves as decreasing? That runs counter to our every instinct for more, for power, for fame, for success. For a Christian leader, the goal is for people to see less of you and more of Jesus. Last week in my sermon, I suggested that one practice you could adopt to explore Christian wisdom and and to experience it in your life would be to serve anonymously, to serve without promoting yourself or letting people know. Well, that happened this week among us, Court, right? We've been letting you know for a while that we needed volunteers to serve at Royal City Mission on March 5th for the Saturday night dinner. Well, we had a great response to that, but then on Tuesday, we heard that suddenly they needed the team for this weekend, for last night. And so an email went out at 11 p.m. on Tuesday, and by the next morning, Enough of you had stepped up that we had it covered. You know who you are. You're not going to stand up here on the stage. Your names may not appear on the screen. But that's how God calls us to lead. Not prominently, but as servants, out of sight and in our weakness. If you're a leader, do you see your role as like the job of a servant? Is your leadership a place 
of service on behalf of Christ for the benefit of others, or is it more of a position of influence for your own benefit? If you supervise people in your job, do you see that as a way of helping them to flourish and blessing them on behalf of Christ? If you have your own business or if you're a manager of some kind, is your goal more broadly to seek the peace and prosperity of the city and to make people's lives better, or is it to make money? If you're a parent, do you see yourself as the way Jesus is growing your kids for his purposes? And are you ready to let them go as they get older, to let them go where he's going to send them, which may not be where you want them to end up? So first of all, a Christian leader is a servant. But secondly, a Christian leader is a steward. Paul has written about the mysteries of God in chapters 1 to 3 of his letter what God has done in sending Jesus to reconcile the world to himself through his death at the cross. Here Paul says, look, I'm just the delivery guy. He calls himself a steward, which literally meant that he was like a household manager. In that culture, in the ancient world, large families often had a steward who looked after the affairs of their home. The steward would take care of the kids, teach them, protect them, discipline them, would also manage the property. But they weren't his kids, and it wasn't his property. His job was to carry out the father's will. So if I can apply this to my role as a preacher, or as the teaching elder of Courtright, This means that I don't get to dream up the family diet. The parents choose what the kids eat. My role is to make it into a meal. As Christians, God's word in scripture is what our Heavenly Father calls our daily bread. Maybe some people just want ramen. They want instant noodles for every meal. Maybe some of those people are in my family. But sometimes you need vegetables. The same principle applies for all the elders of the church who are called to make difficult decisions at times. And in the next three verses, from this point on in chapter 4, Paul shows us how to face criticism. Every leader gets criticized, whether it's justified or unfair. And so Paul writes, "...it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy." But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. And that is the highest possible standard. This does not mean that Christian leaders shouldn't be held accountable. Absolutely, absolutely that is necessary. We need to be open to criticism in the church open to the point of seeking it out. But in the end, all of us are servants of Christ and his stewards as leaders. And so we perform for an audience of one. Paul writes elsewhere in the New Testament, Galatians, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be able to be a servant of Christ. And he goes on to say that humility is the natural product of the leader who is a steward. 
and he or she passes it on to their followers. He writes, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us to not go beyond what is written. Then you won't be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So as steward leaders, we're not to go beyond what is written in Scripture. And if all we have we've received as a gift, then what grounds do we have for pride? It should pave the way to humility. But that isn't what was happening in Corinth. So Paul gets sarcastic next and describes the Corinthians as rich. He says they've begun to reign. Whereas he and the apostles are on display like those who are condemned to die, like gladiators in the arena. And he goes on to draw this stark contrast between his own suffering, the suffering of the apostles, his own foolishness and weakness compared to their wisdom and strength. It's kind of reassuring to know that Paul can be sarcastic, I think, that he has that human element to his personality. The final trait of a Christian leader is suffering. We follow Jesus who lived perfectly and yet who suffered and died. Like the church today, the Corinthian Christians had bought into what Martin Luther identified as a theology of glory, which was the basis for Luther's beginning the Protestant Reformation. A theology of glory is when you assume that God with you, that being a Christian means you should enjoy material success. But Luther said that Christ invites us to embrace a theology of the cross. As Paul says in Philippians, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The fellowship of suffering with Christ is the only way to the power of his resurrection. Do we take that seriously for a second? Maybe you feel wronged by someone in your life right now. Maybe that someone's been on your mind already today. Have you been treated badly by a friend, maybe betrayed by someone? Has someone in your family wounded you? Are you in a leadership role right now or in a job that feels intolerable to you that you're tempted to leave, to give up on? Paul tells us that through our suffering, through the unfair treatment we've received, the criticism, the slander, the difficulty, the hardship we experience as leaders or in any capacity, Christ will be revealed to us and through us. That is his promise, that Jesus will meet us in those hard circumstances. I love the way that A.W. Tozer puts this. He says, it is doubtful whether God can use someone greatly before they have been hurt deeply. But we don't want that, do we? We want to win. We want the gold medal for victory, for being the best. We don't want weakness. We don't want failure. And that's why we cheer for sports teams, I think. We want to share in their accomplishments, not in their suffering. Which makes me wonder, 
over and over again why I'm a Leafs fan. It really does. But we want to be recognized and rewarded. And the Leafs are a lot better lately. Which brings us to the Team Canada women, of whom we are so proud, justifiably so, who beat the U.S. and won gold late on Thursday night. Anyone else stay up for that? Just a few hands. Look, we're divided in so many ways. Our hockey allegiances are just the very tiniest tip of the iceberg. But when we all cheer, or most of us anyway, when we cheer for Team Canada, I think we get a little taste of what Paul meant when he wrote that we should all agree and be perfectly united in chapter one of his letter. That's part of the promise of the Olympics, in a way, and it's a good thing. Except, as magnificent as the women's hockey team is, they can't actually unite us beyond a single moment every four years or so at the Olympics, and maybe not even then. The Americans beat them in 2018, as I recall. Sports, whatever it is that you enjoy, that pulls you into unity, fellowship of a kind with other people, doesn't have the power to change anything. But that's the difference Jesus makes. When we have the mind of Christ, when we look to him, when we worship him and believe in him, when we're part of that crowd of witnesses cheering then God dwells among us, and the Holy Spirit renews us, heals us, and sends us out to love and to serve. What was that line, Justin, from the song? All hail, Redeemer, hail, for he has died for me throughout eternity. There's a picture there of the church worshiping, the church united, the church from every nationality, Team Canada, Team Ghana, Team Iran, Team Korea. United, not just in this world, but through history. And Paul wants to fill us with a vision of that kind of unity in Jesus Christ. And so he writes at the end of chapter 3, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. No more boasting about any human identity or loyalty, the things that give you worth. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. That pretty much covers it all, doesn't it? He says, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. That is the promise that resides in the local church, that resides in us as we are God's temple called together in Jesus Christ. So three final things then. First of all, if you've been wronged by the church or by a Christian leader or as you've served in leadership yourself, that should never have happened. I want to say that really clearly. And I believe that God grieves with you over that experience and wants to heal you of that hurt. That's easy for me to say, but I recognize how complicated that is, that that is a journey that has to happen for many of us. But the first step is always prayer. And if you want to be well, 
We'd love to pray for you in that way today. We have prayer ministers who would love to pray with you after the service. Maybe that's a first step for you back from the distance you've been keeping God at, the church at, back into being a part of what God's calling you to. Secondly, I want to ask, are you right now under spiritual leadership in a local church? Who do you submit to? Because God wants you to grow under godly authority and to have people in your life who will challenge you and call you out when you need it. Have you put yourself under leadership like that? If not, then I would encourage you to take a step towards that. Maybe that looks like joining a small group. Maybe that looks like volunteering. Maybe that looks like becoming a member of Courtright. If that's something you struggle with and want to talk about, I'm always available for coffee or online to meet with you. Thirdly and finally, please pray for these elder elections that we're holding. Pray that we will keep in mind God's standard of Christian leadership. Leaders who are servants, who are stewards, and who are sufferers. And pray for the session of Court Red, our Council of Elders, as we spend significant time together over the next two Saturdays, February 26th and March the 5th. We're going to be gathering both of those days to seek God's will for our congregation. And I'm going to ask Allison to come up now and, and to pray for us in that regard. But I hope that you will also, that as we pray for the elders' election, as we pray for what session is seeking by way of a new vision for court right, um, that we will be in this together. So thank you.